Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. I'm extremely excited for this episode. I think this is round two of having these two macro heavyweight legends of Bitcoin Twitter uh, come together and uh, joining us on the show. And of course, I'm speaking about the one, the only Greg Foss and the one, the only James Lavish. But before we jump into the show, I want to give a quick shout out to the Bitcoin company that makes this show possible, Swan Bitcoin. Best place to build your Bitcoin stack. It's being built by Bitcoiners. It's for Bitcoiners. They incentivize you to dollar cost average. average. They also incentivize you to take self-custody. If you haven't already done so, visit Swan Bitcoin today. All right, guys, no more delay. I want to bring up these two legends on stage. How are you doing, gentlemen? How are you, Nico? Good to see you. Likewise, yeah, likewise. Great I've, seen this, I've seen this guy already this morning on the call, so. <laughs> We're getting our quota in. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I was told Udi was supposed to be on. I didn't oh. realize it was James Lavish. I thought it was Udi. I, swi I switched it up. Oh, okay. You would have canceled. <laughs> Greg, Greg yeah, would have just dropped off. The guys are egging me on to do the hockey barn thing again. So, uh, no, no I, don't think, uh, I don't think I'll do that. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, I'm I'm really excited to uh, to to have you guys on the show. Normally, I would ask some of my questions, but I actually had some fans that had questions for you two. So, first one is from a buddy of mine, Hurley. It said RFK recently revealed at the Heal the Deal uh, Heal Heal the Divide Pack event his vision for returning to a hard currency standard in the U.S. He said his plan would be to start gradually backing the U.S. dollar with hard currency like gold, platinum, and Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on this kind of narrative seeping into the mainstream? And what do you think his chances are of being successful implementing this in the election? And I just want to kind of add to that as well. I think he said that he would take away capital gains tax for Bitcoin also. So it was a, it was a very big announcement, of course, I'm, as a Bitcoiner, I'm skeptical of politicians, but I'm very curious what, what do your guys think? What are your guys' thoughts on on his announcement? Go ahead, James. Well, well, I mean, like I'm with you. I'm skeptical of politicians. I've seen so <laughs> we've we've lived it here so many times where politicians promise something and of course, you know, there's there's enough red tape that it just doesn't happen often. And that's uh that's the problem. It, it's it's a positive for uh for our system but it's also a problem in, in in that you know he's hitting the the nail on the head that our system has an issue with the way the money works the central bank system and the printing money and uh and we have no basis for our for our fiat uh, currency this is something that greg and i talk about all the time there's just there's nothing of value except the backing of it and the, the the belief in it. And for for us to actually go and switch over to, uh, you know, back to a standard where you have your currency actually attached to something like the BRICS have been talking about, um, it, it's a it's a major undertaking. And quite honestly, uh, there's not a lot of incentive for the system to change. Um, and so you have both the red tape and little incentive for them to do this so as much as i love to hear it and and i love to to see it happen where we we do switch over to a a, a bitcoin specifically uh back currency it's a pretty long road and for a four-year term for somebody that that's a that's a long putt now that said i do appreciate the fact that he's putting himself out there 
You know, this is not a, this will not be a popular narrative in the circles he runs in. So it's, uh, it's interesting to say the least. 100%. And, and by the way, Greg, in I saw the picture with you and RFK. I think it was on Sailor's Vote. So uh, how's the man? Hold up. Hoddle Magoo says I need to take TRR to RTT or something to do with I have too much, uh, too low t- t- testosterone. My tits are too big. So fuck you, Hoddle Magoo, but I still love you, kid. Um, <laughs> look, at the end of the day, uh, let's start talking about what uh, was announced. The currency isn't going to be really backed by Bitcoin. They're going to put 1% of Bitcoin on the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Okay. Very clear. So that's 1% more than they have already, but it's not a big number in terms of percentages, in terms of the size of the balance sheet, it's monumental. So if everybody in the world put 1% of their net worth in Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin would be at least 50 uh, $500,000 US per Bitcoin, because 1% of global financial assets of 900 trillion is $9 trillion, $9 trillion divided by 21 million coins is, you know, 45, 450,000 to 500,000, basically the market cap of gold uh, at 10 trillion, nine to $10 trillion. So it's big. It's really big. But it ain't backing the currency per se. The narrative is important, though. The narrative is it's replacing sovereign debt as global reserve asset. Okay, that is the narrative. Everybody missed the narrative. The narrative is sovereign bonds are programmed to debase. And if you want to hold a valuable asset on your balance sheet, you hold the hardest asset ever created called Bitcoin. And you can also throw in a little bit of silver and to make Larry Lapard happy, you'll put a little bit of gold in there too. And you know what? You put might put some of my mom's fine china in there and maybe a piece of fine art, you know, that's also a hard asset. It's the concept. It's the narrative. This is fucking huge. Wow. Is he going to win? Probably not. But the narrative is getting out there. Yeah. Central banks need to hold hard assets, not soft assets. What are soft assets? Bonds. What are hard assets? Gold, silver, commodities, oil. The best one, Bitcoin. Giddy up. I love that. Always great to have Greg on the show. Always fire. Uh, I, I I love that idea, and I, I want to get James' thoughts on that. It's the the cat's out of the bag, per, uh, so to speak. The, the the narrative, right? Hard assets versus this Fugazi that you know they're they're used to holding. Anyways, and then then you could make the argument that that's responsible for all this chaos, and also taking the opportunity away from the younger generations. I would say you know. It, it, the whole system is, is is just messed up. Anyways, James, do you do you have a follow up to uh, Greg's uh, excellent uh, statement? <laughs> yeah, I know it, it's a it's a perfect point. You know that's that's the issue, and we saw over last year when when Russia invaded Ukraine and we turned off their uh, their ability to to use the SWIFT system. We we seized their assets, we seized their treasuries. I mean, that's why you're hearing. BRICS, uh, the, the BRICS countries that that uh, coalition talk about 
moving away from the U.S. Treasury's global reserve asset because they need to have something they can have control of. And that's where they're talking about creating a currency that is backed by gold. Uh, do they Are they ultimately successful? No, but the, Greg is 100% right. The narrative is out there. Uh, you know, there was a massive, massive uh, you know, misstep by us to to use to weaponize the U.S. dollar and the Treasury against a country. And so as much as we need everyone to use Treasuries and to use dollars, it was a major problem. It was a major misstep. And so that's the narrative. Hold something that has actually has value, hard assets. And there's nothing harder than Bitcoin. Amen. And I, I think that will, you know, I think that will become that will continue to become more and more apparent. And it's it's not only RFK Jr., right? You had uh you had Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, you know, vocally came out against, you know, their their new scheme, uh, which are the CBDCs. And I, I think that the CBDCs are a response to Bitcoin. And I think the CBDCs are their hopes or their uh, their Hail Mary of wanting to keep that privilege of being able to create money for free that everyone else has to work for. Um, and uh, Ron DeSantis made it illegal in Florida. Right. And you have. And shout out to you, Greg. You have uh, some Canadian politicians. I saw Pierre Polyvar's uh, speech at the rodeo in Calgary. Amazing city, by the way. Um, wow. So, uh, so yeah. So he's filled me in. I didn't see mean. So I, I'm not even aware. What did Polyev say? He said that he will ban cabinet members from holding, uh, from trying to pass a CBDC in Canada. And uh, he was also uh, at very at very. Uh, he was very favorable towards Bitcoin as well. Yeah. Well, let's just say that he um, he has a direct line to one of my favorite Bitcoiners in Canada. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. And it's not me. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I love myself, but the, the direct line's not to me. All right. So uh, he's got some good, uh, some good back office uh, support um, in his. Now, there is a Canadian Bitcoiner who's in his party, and his name is Ben Lobb, L-O-B-B. He's the member of parliament for an area called Huron-Bruce, which happens to own or operate Canada's largest nuke. And Ben Lobb is dismayed that there are times when we, as Canadians, don't sell power cheaply to Americans. We pay them to take our power. Okay, I need to repeat that. This nuke has so much capacity and not the transmission ability out of the nuclear generator to the rest of Canada. There are transmission lines that go down to the northern peninsula of Michigan. And when there's not enough baseload demand in Canada and the nuke is still spinning, we pay Americans to take our... <laughs> power yeah it's it's important Good it's, Lord. yeah but greg and you're you're an engineer maybe you can uh tell people and explain to people why you can't just uh why why that that energy buildup in a nuclear reactor can be dangerous a dangerous like a fuse box dangerous like you know a piece of kindling dangerous because when you're generating energy and it can't be distributed or dispersed things go kaboom so you got to pay our friendly americans to take the power. Again, we don't give it to you guys cheaply, ask you for a nominal amount. We pay you to take our power. Don't you think we should probably have a Bitcoin yes. miner? <laughs> a 
and Ben Love was at the Canadian Bitcoin conference in Toronto, Ontario, sitting on a panel with none other than the nuclear Bitcoiner, a Canadian who works in uh, Churchill Falls, Manitoba, or somewhere up there where Canada leads the world in this specific reactor called CANDU. And the DU stands for deuterium uranium or something like that. Canada deuterium uranium. And we're world leaders in this shit. And if we could get our acting gear and mine Bitcoin on the surplus energy from the can-do reactors or on small modular reactors, holy moly, it's that simple. It's really... So, anyway, bullish on nuclear mining. Yes, thank you. That Oh, is that you, Nico, that sent that out? So I'm trying to read the, the things. Yes, we're bullish on nuclear mining. No, that, that was Opti. That was Opti. Swan? <laughs> okay, Opti, thanks, brother. Listen, Swan Bitcoin... Shout out to Alex Stancic had a really good um, cafe Bitcoin the other day where they brought on Terra Wolf, right? Terra Wolf is behind the meter, nuclear mining, two cents a kilowatt hour, long-term power contract. Bitcoin mining in conjunction with nuclear energy capacity allows your cap, your, your IRR or your return on investment to be decreased over a period that typically takes 30 years. I mean, you know how expensive it is to construct a nuclear reactor? It takes about 30 years for you to get your return on investment back. But when you add in Bitcoin mining to balance the base load and to provide incremental revenue, your ROI increases and your time, your payback period decreases. So, I don't know, guys. I mean, you know that I love mathematics. <laughs> I just wish, wish more people would understand mathematics. And by the way, nuclear energy is quite clean. It's quite reliable. And there's this thing called um, the trilemma, right? For energy, it can be cheap, it can be reliable, or it can be clean. And you can't have all three. So cheap and clean, that's solar. It's bullshit. It's not reliable. You can have clean and you can have reliable. That's fucking nuclear, <laughs> but it isn't cheap. Okay. And then you can have, I guess, what's the top one? It's uh, uh, cheap and reliable. That's Russia. That fucking work. <laughs> Okay, cheap and reliable, that's fucking communism. Okay, so you can't have, you can only have two, but you can't have three. Okay, so that's the trilemma of energy. It, so it sounds like Bitcoin fixes this, and I completely agree. Before Bitcoin, there was no buyer of last resort, right? Uh, just, just, you know, and I think a lot of people have this misconception, and, and I, I honestly blame the legacy media for a lot of this, right? Where it's like Bitcoin uses more energy than the country of Denmark. But they don't tell you the nuance. What energy is it using? It's using stranded energy because if it wasn't stranded energy, it wouldn't be economical for the miners to use it in the first place. <laughs> and, and by the way, let's call it out for what it is. It's more important than the, the country of Denmark as well. Okay, You guys fuck off. Okay, Like just fuck off. If you don't understand that there's some countries in the world that are less important than Bitcoin, 
you got to understand the GDP and the, and the construct of what Bitcoin is bringing to the world. I love Dutch hockey players and Dutch figure skaters and Dutch. Now the speed skaters, the speed skaters are pretty phenomenal. Speed skaters are fucking amazing. Right? But listen, Bitcoin's more important than all of them. And props not as important as the farmers in Netherlands, but you know, they don't seem to matter in the Netherlands. They're just going to plow all those fields over and, you know, create immigrant fucking uh, uh, housing instead of farming. Like, I mean, come on, guys. You got to do the math. And Bitcoin is more important than many small countries in the world. Why? Because it's going to add way more GDP, global GDP, than that individual company country is going to add. A hundred percent. And I just want to mention this, by the way, Greg, because you, you said that comment about Denmark, that hashtag that we put on screen for our audio listeners, this is unplug Denmark is a hashtag that Opti came up during the live show. And I actually gave him crap for that. But now that you've said it, Opti, I was wrong and you were oh, right. I think I said, okay, sorry, was it Denmark or Netherlands? Denmark. It doesn't matter. I always heard it was Netherlands. It was Denmark. They, they, the media Denmark's Denmark. even worse. <laughs> Well, okay, They've, I've heard Netherlands. Denmark is still even bigger rounding error. Like, fuck off, you guys. Like, it's Canada doesn't matter. Pretend that Canada matters. You're losing your mind. Um, There's only a few countries in the world that matter. So Bitcoin shouldn't be more important than, like, the USA. But it certainly is important, more important than 150 of the 170 fiat countries out there. That I guarantee you. And so, therefore, it should use more energy. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, so there's that, there's that argument. And then there's the, the, again, like Bitcoin isn't using, uh, it, it, it you can't set up a mining operation in New York city. Like it, it's not economical. It, it, Bitcoin miners are going to go to where there's cheap energy. And if there's cheap energy, it's, it's because it's, there's excess, there's an excess capacity. Right. right. Anyways, um, James, I want to pivot and I want to ask you this question. I want to take advantage of the fact that you guys are both here because this was a huge news and you guys have a tremendous amount of experience between both you guys here. I hear Foss in my head when I wake up in the morning, 30 years in a wrist chair. Um, but anyways, um, so, um, okay. What are your guys thoughts on BlackRock, the BlackRock ETF? Uh, it is it because I had Larry, uh, had, uh, had Larry and Caitlin Long on yesterday. Okay. And Caitlyn Lawn basically said that she's like, it's a big nothing, it's a big nothing burger. And I'm like, why is it a big nothing burger? She's, she's like, because I'm afraid of rehypothecation. So I want to get your guys' thoughts on that. Like, what are your guys' thoughts on the BlackRock ETF? James, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a uh, a risk long term. The rehypothecation, you know, using that that asset to to uh, to then lend out, and and you know, we've seen issues. That, in the uh, in the big banks of this for gold, for instance, you know, uh, it, it, it's been a problem. But short term, um, look, the institutions are coming. There's it's just reality. It's what it is. They're 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 coming for Bitcoin. They're, they're getting more comfort around it. They're getting more understanding around it. And they they the really the, the big thing is that you have massive amount of of consumer interest around bitcoin in particular and that uh along with the the sight line of getting some sort of regulatory clarity around it is giving these big companies comfort that 
they they can get into it. It lowers their personal risk. It lowers their reputational risk. You know, um, and they they can they can get on board and start offering this. When BlackRock has an ETF, it's not going to be BlackRock buying it. It's not going to just be BlackRock and their funds buying it. They're going to be offering it as a as an ETF to the street, which means that the important part about this, and this is the part that everybody kind of you know focuses on, and it is important, is that it's an easy on ramp for uh, investors who have not been able to get into the space yet to to uh, to to be able to buy Bitcoin without worrying about all of the issues that come with buying Bitcoin if you're in a small institution. What's a small institution? Well, that's like a small family office or a mid-sized family office that doesn't have the capability or the, the you know, they don't have the comfort around custodying their own Bitcoin, their asset. And so as fiduciaries managing this family office of money, they can't just go out, buy Bitcoin and then let it sit at Coinbase and feel comfortable around it. You know, they or they can't go and buy it and then self-custody it, put it in, in a wallet and feel comfort around that themselves. It feels too risky to them. They don't understand it well enough to do that. And there's a lot of hurdles to get over that. When you're an institution, and I've, I've talked through this before, you have to go through a, a, a chain of, of uh, approvals in order to buy Bitcoin as a separate asset class. What do I mean by that? Well, you 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 start out with a portfolio manager who has interest in this. Say one of the analysts comes and brings a portfolio manager this this idea says Bitcoin shows them all of the the sharp ratios, how it lowers the long term risk of the portfolio, raises the risk reward of the portfolio, and it's compelling. And they understand it as a separate asset class. And the bit and the and the portfolio manager says, okay, that's great. I, I understand it. I want to buy it. So what does he do? He goes to the chief investment officer and says, I think we should be buying Bitcoin. And the CIO says, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. There's a lot of risk around that. You've seen what, what has happened with this, the, the meltdowns of these exchanges, the fraud, the you know, nefarious activity. We we've got to pump the brakes here. Let's go through the the proper approvals and, and make sure that we're doing this the right way. When he finally gets on board and he understands it and he says, okay, I, I, I believe I, I agree with you, we should do this. Well, then they've got to get their compliance on board. And compliance means their chief compliance officer or their, their general counsel. And that means that they've got to get everything in order. Who's going to buy it? Where is it going to settle? How are they going to pay for it? Where are they going to custody it? Who's going to be control the keys and the custody of it? Those are all the things they've got to get. It takes a massive amount of brain power and time to get through all of that red tape to get the approvals for these institutions to finally do it. So when you have small family offices, registered investment advisors, the IRAs that want to buy it for their, their, their clients, that want to buy it for their customers, they can't because their hands are tied. They literally cannot do it. But when an ETF comes out that's a spot ETF that actually has the underlying asset that's attached to it, that's easy. They can go on the New York Stock Exchange or a NASDAQ, buy it, settle it at their, their prime broker, done. It's in their, it's in their client's account. It makes it an, an ex, a huge super highway on-ramp for that kind of capital. That's, that's the front end of it. The back end, Greg, you can talk about rehypothecation and some of the dangers that can come with it, but that's the front end of it, in my opinion. And Greg? Okay. Yeah, that's great. Uh, here's 
everything James says, uh, summarized in one, I guess it's a word, it's called QSIP. And every single financial asset in the world has a QSIP if it's traded by an institution. But Bitcoin doesn't have a QSIP in the United States. And to put a QSIP on Bitcoin via a BlackRock ETF that does all the things that James, talked to, James talks about actually allows Bitcoin to be integrated into the portfolios of these institutions so that it's simple to monitor, it's simple to isolate your risk, measure your risk, put it in something called NakamotoPortfolio.com, which is Alpha Zeta's, Swan Bitcoin's CIO, about how it's going to improve their uh, portfolio returns at the same time as decreasing portfolio risk. I mean, that's the optimal thing, right? So that's all everything James said. So yes, that's true. Okay. Rehypothecation. Has anyone ever audited the total supply of gold? <laughs> no, you can't. There's so much gold out there that people don't even know whether it's actually tungsten painted gold or how much gold is in Fort Knox that you can rehypothecate this blind ledger easily to the point where JP Morgan is some, something like short more than, I don't know, I saw something like close to 75% of the market cap of gold via the GLD. Like, okay, that's rehypothecation. In pure buying and selling, lending, assuming all the BlackRock shares ETFs were borrowable, you could lend out 100% of the BlackRock ETF, okay? If all of the shares were borrowable, which means there's two times the supply in the BlackRock ETF. But that's it because it is auditable to the Bitcoin that BlackRock has to hold on their balance sheet that is real Bitcoin. It's not fake Bitcoin. So I am not concerned about rehypothecation. Yes, it will happen. But compared to the other advantages of creating on ramps that will eventually lead to self custody of Bitcoin when these guys figure out that's the way to hold your keys. I'm quite bullish on it. I'm so bullish that I'm going to tell you how much Bitcoin is going to, how much demand is going to flow into the U.S. market in Bitcoin. You want to know the number? Hit it, hit it with us, Greg. 50 billion. Holy crap. Why? Because in Canada, where we're one-tenth the size of the USA, 5 billion flowed into the market. Ah, math. <laughs> math. 50 billion. Yeah, and I would that's say I would say that's even that's even pessimistic, right, Greg? Because you, the U.S. market has buyers from all over the world that are are focused on on holding assets here in U.S. dollars because Fair they want enough. to own dollars, right? So that's that being said, there was also James. Sorry to interrupt. There was also U.S. buyers of the Canadian sure, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Too. So yeah. look, I, I'm I'm trying to be a big shot here. I've had a long day, um, you know, like. Uh, it's 5 p.m. I haven't even had my first Molson yet. This is getting tough to, to sit through this. for And I love Caitlin Long, by the way. She is absolutely a rock star. But 
I perhaps disagree with her on this point. I think the positives far outweigh the negatives. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be huge. I wonder what Larry Lapard said. What did Larry say? Uh, Larry, Larry was also, you know, Larry's a, Larry loves gold. Right. Um, and he was a bit he was also not as much as Caitlin. But uh, by the way, for anyone who's nah, he's too polite, he's too polite. <laughs> he just didn't want to disagree with Caitlin. He gets it. Gold is a farcical ledger compared to Bitcoin. OK, yeah. So, the thing with gold is you could just issue paper, issue paper, issue paper. You don't have to actually have it audited like you do. And, you know, the correct yeah. 21 million Bitcoin, guys. And if all of the Bitcoin in the whole world were borrowable, There'd be 42 million. Okay. That's not all going to be borrowable because most of the Bitcoin is tucked away. That's how it works. Okay. I, I, I'm so sorry. Like, I guess I shouldn't have, uh, you know, had that extra TRT injection or whatever <laughs> fucking Hato Magoo wanted me to do. So, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh man. Um, by the way, guys, for anyone who's interested and curious as to why the the Caitlin and Larry episode is pre-recorded. So that drops on Saturday. So this is a this is a pre-show before that show. Anyways, gentlemen, uh, okay, interesting. You guys feel bullish about the BlackRock ETF. I do, I do as well. Um, but I also look at BlackRock and their support of the whole ESG thing for a very long time. Also, we know that Larry Fink had his thoughts on um, on on Bitcoin, saying basically it was just for money laundering. And it's just funny because on CNNBC a couple days ago, and I'm sure you gentlemen have seen this video, he's like, this is going to become an international asset. And I was like, holy crap, I can't believe we are here in the movie. So anyways, I want to get your guys thoughts on that. <laughs> it's good Can for business. Jump in, James? <laughs> yeah, go for it. It's good for business, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Black, so BlackRock endorsing a, a Bitcoin ETF essentially uh, throws out their ESG narrative against Bitcoin. And in fact, did you guys see the MIT uh, study that showed how valuable Bitcoin is to the environment, actually? Bitcoin mining, mm -hmm. rather. So I think, I think that the BlackRock endorsement of a Bitcoin ETF doesn't mean they have abandoned ESG. It just means that they don't believe Bitcoin is ESG unfriendly. I don't know. I never thought it was ESG unfriendly. A lot of New York Times and Greenpeace knuckleheads think it is, but it isn't because they haven't done the work. And then what was the second one? The first one was ESG. What was the second one? The second one was he said that Bitcoin is, this was in 2018. Oh, money laundering. Yes. Yeah. Money laundering. Okay, come on, guys. Let's remember what the biggest currency in money laundering is in the world. And I'll leave it there. Over to you, James. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, like he knows it, the, the reason they're saying this because they have customers who want it. You know, they know, they understand the, what I just said, that it's extraordinarily difficult and it takes a very long time for all of Like if you're an RIA, if you're a registered investment advisor, you've been wanting to buy. I've talked to IRAs who are like, I want to buy Bitcoin. I cannot do it for my for my clients. I can't do it because I I don't have the function to do it in a way that I can prove I, I've I've uh, fulfilled my fiduciary duty for them. And and so he understands that. And and we're getting to the point now where it's just 
undeniable. And when we're at that point, well, they're going to push the SEC over the edge and they're going to they're going to get to a spot where the SEC has no choice but to concede and say, OK, you, you fulfilled the requirements for oversight. You can use Coinbase as the custodian and we're going to we're going to go ahead and, and move forward with this. And at that point, it's like Greg said, the floodgates open and you're going to have 50 billion dollars pour in. And that to me is going to be the start. The start of what, James? The start of, <laughs> the NGU. Start of <laughs> that's right, NGU. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's it's going to be the part where the that becomes a separate asset class that you that every institution has absolutely no argument against allocating to, and and what uh, what Greg had pointed to before the Nakamoto, uh, the Nakamoto portfolio. This is really important in, in for people to understand is you could plug in Bitcoin in any type of portfolio and see where it pushes your portfolio uh, out on that uh, risk reward curve and enhances virtually any, any type of portfolio you've owned since Bitcoin was created. And that's it's super important. And once uh, portfolio managers, they they grab onto this, they're not going to let go and it will be an allocation that will take the place of an allocation to bonds, period. Yeah, yeah and, and it's also shout out to Can, Hoffa for- Yeah, yeah Hoffa's ahead, amazing. Can I just say, uh, James, 100% agree. Yeah, that, isn't that cool? The Schrodinger model and, uh, and everything. Uh, but 100% agree that it, it, it should come, the allocation should come from the uh bond portfolio it won't replace bonds right i mean bonds no. are the world's largest asset class I, I you know that i just want to make sure viewers understand let's play some mathematics okay if total global financial debt is 400 trillion and one percent of that debt got allocated to bitcoin <laughs> that's four trillion of allocation which is four times the size, oh, excuse me, no, about eight times eight the times size yeah. of the current market of Bitcoin. That's 1% of the allocation of the total global debt. Wow, this is why the numbers are so asymmetric, okay? And, um, and yeah, and remember, we've talked, we've talked about it before. There, there's only a handful of funds who, who control $30 trillion of assets, right? And BlackRock is one of them, right? So you've got BlackRock, Vanguard, UBS, Fidelity, and I think State Street, Morgan Stanley are kind of uh, like right on top of each other, but that's $30 trillion of assets right there between them. So BlackRock gets on board, Fidelity gets on board, State Street gets on board. When they allocate separately to this, it, 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 it behooves everybody to. You, you can't have your neighbor portfolio manager, look, Hedge funds all talk to each other. That's why it's so difficult for hedge funds to make money these days is because they're all in the same trades. You know, they're all on top of each other. And so when you have these, when you have asset managers that are so big that are getting into it on the front end here, then you have not just the asset managers looking at it as a separate allocation, but then you also have the treasuries of these large corporations looking at it. And whether it's Microsoft or it's Apple or whoever, they can't deny it anymore. They're going to have to consider it 
And once they start considering it, they're going to have to consider it, you know, in their own terms and just and ignore all the, the nonsense and the noise from the media and, and dig into it as a separate asset allocation themselves, because it's, it's that important to them to protect their own capital. And that's what's important here. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I, so, and I agree with you, with, uh, with you gentlemen, the next cycle, I believe this is going to happen because I think we're going to reach a point where on the public company level, uh, Michael Saylor's big bet is going to be like, it's going to be undeniable at that point that he made the right decision. Um, and then on the nation state level also, uh, with Naim Bukele's decision with El Salvador, it's going to become undeniable. Uh, there's no amount of legacy media spin, New York Times doctoring photos and all of that stuff that is uh, is going to be able to uh, obfuscate what, what, to use Greg's words, what the math is. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited for the next cycle. Now, I want to get you guys' thoughts on this. I believe the last cycle was cut short. Um, for two reasons. I think that a lot of paper Bitcoin was being sold uh, with FTX and all that stuff that was going on there. But I also believe uh, with the primary reason is the CCP mining band. And uh, that literally happened in the middle of the last Bitcoin bull run. And you'll see the hash rate and the price literally directly correlated as if they're tied together. And I believe it brought down the price because those miners needed to sell Bitcoin in order to relocate to uh, more friendlier jurisdictions. So I guess my question is, um, it, do you believe in the theory of the diminishing returns theory? Are, are, are you know the best opportunities for Bitcoin behind us? Are we still in the beginning phases of this? I know, Greg, you touched upon this earlier, but I just want to get your thoughts on this because my belief, uh, my spidey sense is, is telling me that I think that the next cycle is going to really surprise people, uh, maybe not to the downside like last time, but perhaps to the upside. Yes. Is that enough? <laughs> no. Uh, okay. So, yes, I agree with you because Bitcoin has to attain a certain market cap in order for it to be able to be invested in by the biggest funds in the world. Okay. Because... If Bitcoin is a micro cap asset, the biggest funds in the world can't put one even 1% of their asset base into it without absolutely causing that price to skyrocket. Nor would they want to put even less than 1% in because you probably don't allocate an analyst time to this asset class if you're going to put less than a 1% allocation. So you know, I'm not sure if you guys know who Worth is. He's uh, W-O-R-T-H on Twitter. I can't remember what his handle is, but he used to be a, he's from Arkansas, portfolio manager, lots of years in the market like me, long, short equity guy. Alex Stancic, this is my second shameless plug for Alex, I think, on your podcast here. Stancic says to me, he goes, Foss, what do you think the market cap of Bitcoin needs to be in order for it to get really big money? Uh, involved. And I said somewhere around where we are right now, 500 billion to up to 4 trillion. Like once it reaches 4 trillion, all of the biggest accounts in the world can get an allocation 
without materially changing the price, or more importantly, they can get an analyst's time in there to analyze this investment. So my answer was between half a billion, or sorry, half a trillion and four trillion. Uh, worth answered with a number, if I'm not mistaken, which was five trillion. And so there's two opinions of people who think that you need to attain a certain market size in order for the biggest money in the world to get a proper allocation to it for liquidity and analyst time. And then once they get that allocation, they tell two friends and so on and so on. And all of a sudden, Bitcoin becomes a standard holding in all of the portfolios around the world, which allows it to go from less than 1% of total global financial assets, right? We're at actually at less than uh, one-tenth of 1% right now. It can go from one-tenth of 1% of total global financial assets up to 5%. Okay? That's a 50-bagger. Easily. Now you can say, damn, I missed Bitcoin going from a thousand to 30,000. But guess what? It can still go from 30,000 to one and a half million. And it's the same 30 bagger. In fact, no, that's a 50 bagger. So it's because the market grows and it's the law of big numbers. And when the market gets big enough for the big money to get in, you can see the same types of returns as you saw when it was a micro cap. So I'm not that concerned that the biggest returns are behind us. What I may say is the volatility will decrease, but I don't think the price appreciation opportunity has decreased at all. But yeah, maybe the volatility has decreased. So that even brings more money into the fold. I don't know. Bitcoin doesn't care. At the end of the day, it's still so stupid cheap. I'm not going to argue whether the last cycle was cut short or anything like that because we're dealing with rounding errors here, Nico. Yeah, um, yeah someone just said at 500,000 is cheap. It is because I think it's going to 2 million in today's dollars, 2 million. Am yeah. I right? I don't know. But I'm at a high, much higher certainty than the market odds are giving me right now that I'm going to be right. So, um, yeah, you can get those returns and that's the asymmetry of the trade or the investment. And that's why everybody needs that exposure. hundred percent. And James, do you want to follow up that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, something that Greg said, the, I agree with all that. Um, but something that he said in the, at the end there, that's really important is in today's dollars, $2 million in today's dollars, which we're all dollar centric and we're all just thinking about us dollars. And I do believe the dollar will be the, the last one standing um, or the one of the very last ones standing. But something else to think about is it's not just us dollars that this is, you know, we're think about the people in Venezuela who are experiencing what 80, hundred percent inflation, you know, think about the people in, in, uh, in Lebanon, who can't even get their money out of the bank. You know, I don't think they're not thinking about this as a trade or an investment. This is like a lifeline for them. They need to be able to have an asset that they can they can hold on to, take with them anywhere in the world 
and it still retain its value for the work that they've that they've put into the world. They've been compensated for that. They need to be able to, to keep that. It's completely unfair for them not to. And so this gives them that, that ability. So in their terms, I mean, the, the, the best returns may still be ahead for them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you guys have me feeling really, really bullish right now. Anyways. Um, all right, gentlemen. So uh, we talked about BlackRock. We talked about um, we talked about the idea of the, the diminishing returns theory. Now I want to talk about uh, something that goes both uh, both up, both of you. You guys are special. You guys are you guys are uh, specialists in the in this concept, right? And this is a question that I always get from some of our viewers, and it's this concept of of the debts the the debt spiral. Are we seeing it play out in real time? Uh, even with, you know, a so-called conservative government in the United States, uh, they couldn't help themselves but to, uh, you know, raise the debt ceiling once again. So it, it, it to me and remember, like the whole the whole political charade, because it was like, no, we're you know, we're, we're going to stand our ground. We're going to not do anything. But I'm looking at it from the outside in. And of course, I'm not as experienced as you two gentlemen. And I'm like, this is a joke. They, I don't think they have a choice, but to, they don't have a choice, but not to, uh, to raise the debt ceiling because if they don't raise the debt ceiling, the whole system collapses upon, upon itself. I want to get your guys' thoughts. Nico, here's a secret. There is no debt ceiling. <laughs> That's uh, the secret. And everybody James, knows James, James is going to have a great answer. So I'm going to go even more quickly. Okay. See, the funny thing is debt or interest expense compounds, right? And therefore, it's what's called an exponential function. I need you guys to do some math here with me. An exponential function looks like this, right? It's a parabola. And why is it an exponential function? Because the present value, oh, excuse me, the future value is calculated as the present value times one plus R, which is the discount rate or the 10-year U.S. Treasury rate for a number, to the power of N, the number of years that this has grown. So when you have something to the power of N, you fucking knuckleheads, that's called an exponential function. An exponential function looks like that, which means the debt was growing on a relative basis the same in the past. It's just that the debt burden was so much smaller. Now, all of a sudden, it's hit a point where the interest expense is $1 trillion. That's the number that's opening people's eyes. It doesn't matter. Yes, it has accelerated because it's called the second derivative, the rate of change of change. Okay. But it's all mathematics of a debt spiral because interest expense compounds. End of class. That's as simple as I can lay it out. If you don't understand what I just said, go back to grade 11 math and listen for a fucking change. Okay. <laughs> Mathematics is important. And if you don't understand how a debt spiral works, you can become the prime minister of Canada or perhaps Joe Biden. Okay. Cause those guys have no clue about exponential functions. I am certain of that. <laughs> Christine Lagarde, Christine Lagarde can be put in that camp too. So, yeah, and I, you know, the answer is, yeah, we're in it. 
we're already in it. There's no, there's no way out. We, we just like Greg said, we, we operate in a perpetual deficit and we have to fund that deficit with additional treasuries. And the problem is right now we're trying to battle inflation. And so you've got the fed raising rates in order to battle inflation and it's causing the interest expense on that debt to go higher. And so you have to borrow more money every year in order to pay that down. And we've got half the debt is it's maturing over the next uh, three years or so. And so you're seeing the expense just go through the roof. And we just saw it with what you, you talked about, um, Nico, the, the debt ceiling being raised. Well, what they did is they just eliminated it, basically. And they said, OK, just we're not going to we're not going to prove any more spending. But the Treasury can can issue as many bonds as they need to cover all of the expenses we have, which are quite a bit, obviously. So now the issue is that they're as they issue more debt and they had to go back and fill the 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 Treasury general account, which was it was down to just just a 30 billion dollars, which they can spend, you know, before we even have our first cup of coffee in the morning. Well, that 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 TGA account had come down from about a half a trillion dollars. So they had to fill that back up. Number one, they had to pay for all the debt that was that was maturing in June. Number two, they had to pay for all the intergovernment uh, tabs that they ran up because they used extraordinary measures to avoid tripping the debt ceiling. Number three, so you saw the Treasury issue a trillion dollars worth of debt this past month. And so it went from 31 and a half trillion to 32 and a half trillion in, in just a few weeks. And so why did that happen? Because of what I just said. And because of what Greg is saying is that the, the cost of, of doing business for the United States is getting, it's getting higher every single year. And so we have to issue more debt. And so we're in this spiral that we, we, we just can't get out of. And so uh, will the US collapse today, tomorrow? No. Will we get out of it? No. Will we eventually collapse? Yes period. That's just, it, it, it's just no, there's no way around it. There's just too much debt. You can see in, in my pinned tweet, I've got a thread of all these different things I've talked about, but in that debt spiral 201, the second one I talked about, the, the U.S. Treasury itself put out a chart. It was, it's a visual and it was in this report that they, that they issued uh, maybe five or six months ago. And it was it was called an unsustainable fiscal path. And basically what it's saying is that the Treasury is trying to tell Congress that they can't keep issuing debt like this. And and uh, yeah, keep going down. It's down a little bit. But um, what. Yeah, keep going, keep going, keep there. Yeah, the second one. So and in there, you'll see that there's a, there's this chart and what Greg is talking, what this, what's important about this is this chart in and of itself is astounding. And it's it's mind boggling that it that it's this bad that they admit to it. But the important part is that this chart just shows a straight line increase. Keep going. That's an important one, too. You can see how it's just growing bigger. The deficit's growing bigger. The debt is growing bigger. Keep going. And then keep going and then this right there they admit that it's out of control but that is a straight line and what greg is talking about and what they don't what they don't admit to is that line is going to go parabolic and that's the problem 
Oh, so it's so they're admitting to this already being a excuse my language, but I'm I'm going to say they're already admitting it for this to be an absolute clusterfuck. But this is going to be a parabolic clusterfuck. Yeah, um, is, that there is, what is you're saying. that's optimistic. It's not going to happen like that. Six hundred percent of GDP. Well, it looks good on a graph. <laughs> you think it actually works? I don't know. I doubt it. But oh god, uh, you know. Oh god. Well, and and it all stems by their 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 ability to print. I know you know with the bonds and the, the Fed and all that stuff. But you just, if you just simplify it for the sake of the show, right? It it all stems from their ability to just print money. That it, it, it really stems from that. And that's right. and that's how they pay for everything. And they have basically an Amex with no. Uh, it's a, it's a kid with an Amex with very wealthy parents, and the Amex has absolutely no uh, yeah, limits. Yeah, you remember, you remember when you got your first checkbook? You may not have because you're too young. No, right? no, no. You remember I, when you got your first I'm, checkbook? I'm not, that, like, I'm not that young. I remember. I, I remember. Can, <laughs> yeah, I can write checks forever. I can buy anything. Uh, yeah. Oh, I got to have the money in my account for this? Oh, okay. Yeah. But, you know, the, <laughs> the issue here, Nico, is – and here's the here's a sobering issue, is we're crowding out – the marginal balance sheet that can take on this debt. That's the problem. And so what you've seen in the last month, what we did is we issued about a trillion dollars worth of debt and we, we drained a lot of that, the difference between the debt that was maturing, that number, which was three, $400 billion, and the, the amount that they had to issue on top of that. So debt matures, investor gets cash back, they plow it into more debt, right? But there's still a vig there, right? There's a there's a there's a difference, a delta there between what they need to issue, which is a trillion dollars, and the amount of debt that was maturing that they need to reissue. Okay, right? So think through that. The 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 debt matures. The treasury doesn't really have enough money to pay for that, so they issue more debt to pay for that, and then that debt that matured, that investor gets capital back. He plows it into that new debt, but they still have more debt that they have to issue. So where does it come from? It came from the reverse repo market. So they're soaking up that. But once that's gone, you know, it's not like China and Japan are rushing out there to in Russia are rushing out there to, to buy our treasuries anymore. They're not. And so you've got these balance sheets of these corporations and investors, worldwide investors. You've got State Street. You've got, you know, CalPERS. You've got Texas Teachers. Once they can't buy any more debt, once they're crowded out, who's going to buy it? Well, they're going to print money and buy it. They're going to print money, put it at the Fed. The Fed's going to go and have the dealers buy it. The Fed's going to buy it from the dealers, give them the cash that they were just given. And that's it's just a whole charade. And that's the way it's going to happen until it doesn't. So, in, and in, it's interesting that you say that because in, in in earlier, uh, Greg, you said that you know treasuries and bonds were always going to be a staple, but if we know it's a it's you know it's BS, why do you believe that they're still going to play such an essential role? In, well, it won't uh, turn off. It won't turn off overnight. And secondly, okay. as long as people continue to accept newly printed money as payment for mm. their old money. Gotcha. The system continues. So I like gotcha. to say that the printing quantitative quantitative easing infinity is the error term that solves the debt spiral. Like the debt spiral can go forever as long as people accept their debasing currency as payment for the maturing debt. 
Okay. And by the way, James is totally right. But when you're running an 8% annual fiscal deficit, 8% of GDP is being added each year because that's the fiscal deficit because you're not bringing in enough revenues. Not only are those old bonds being refinanced with new bonds, 8% is being added to the deficit because the government has more expenditures than it has revenues so annually. So that means the debt itself will just without compound interest will double in less than eight years. Okay. Or 10 years rather 8% in 10 years. So look, fiat printing is the error term that solves the debt spiral, but it's always been the error term that solves the debt spiral. That is how fiat Ponzi economics works. And it works for a long time in countries like the USA, but in countries like Venezuela, people eventually go no more or no mas. No. <laughs> I don't accept it anymore. And I throw the currency to the corner because it's not worth anything to the curb. Hey, Nico, bring up the usdebtclock.org. Oh, you got it. And scroll down it. to the bottom. This is the part that Greg likes the best. <laughs> Greg, you want to talk through this one? <laughs> sure. I mean, we're almost at the end of the podcast, but it's a good place to end. So usdebtclock.org. Okay. Pull it up, Nico. Yep. I'm working on it. There we go. Boom. So it's delayed on my screen a second. Okay. So you nice. see the top right hand, the top left hand side. That's your total national debt right there. Total 32 trillion, right? 32 and a half trillion. It was just 32 trillion. We've put on half a trillion dollars in uh you know a couple of months here a week um, but, a couple of weeks yeah <laughs> okay so that's 32 trillion it will be 50 trillion by the year 2033 by the way okay so wow. that's only mathematics but here's the cool thing go down to the bottom right hand corner nico okay now expand that that us unfunded liabilities that's the real number people $192 trillion that people are counting on for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And they may get it, but the only way they're getting it, I hate to tell you people, is they're going to have to print it, which means the value of each dollar is going to continue to debase. We'll get it, but Gen X will get it, but it's not going to be worth anything. Yeah. And... It's not, it's, it's, it may, they may not get it because sometime the money printer may break or the world will not take that money anymore, but let's assume it does. Fiat debasement is 100% certain. So let's not complicate things. If you know something is 100% certain, how do you protect against it? You own hard assets. So real estate, gold, oil, commodities, we mentioned that, but what's the best one? It's called Bitcoin. It's 6 p.m. Eastern Canadian time right now. I need to run to a dinner. I'll let James summarize the simplicity of grade 11 math for you. But I think you get the picture. That's this good. is the good. simplest, simplest trade or investment I've ever seen in my life. And if you own zero, go become an actor work on some stupid fucking show and then go on CBC, CNBC and look like a total retread when they say, I only had to read 20 pages of the Fiat standard to understand why Bitcoin matters. And that fucking loser 
Well, it's called scarcity. And scarcity, he doesn't even understand the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, okay? Ben McKenzie, learn fucking mathematics, okay? Peace and love from Canada. I got to run. Thanks, love guys. It, buddy. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Uh, James, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the, <laughs> you want to add to that before we wrap it up? I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna summarize it. The only wrong allocation of Bitcoin is zero. You know, I can't tell you how much you should have because everybody's different. Every single person's portfolio, personal situation, income needs, needs for cash is different. It's a volatile asset, but you shouldn't you should have more than zero percent. That's it period. Amen. I think, I, you know, it's for, for, I think, uh, I think that's conservative. I, for, for my generation, I'm, you know, it's, it's for me, yeah, it's, you're young. You could have, you could have, you know, yeah. five, 10, 20% and still make that up later. It, it all depends on your risk profile, your risk appetite and what you, what you feel comfortable with. If you're my age, you know, and it just depends on what your, what your needs are, whether yeah. you've got, uh, high cost of living, whether you've got kids, you have to pay for whatever. So, yeah, but uh, yeah, I love Greg. He's super colorful. And, but the point, <laughs> his, his points are, are rock solid and spot on. And that's the important part. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, Greg's a great guy and so are you James. And yeah. uh, I really appreciate you joining me today on simply Bitcoin IRL. Always an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. And uh I really, really enjoyed uh, this conversation uh, a lot. So really awesome. appreciate you, man. All and, right, uh, man. Will I see you at Pacific Bitcoin? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm speaking. I don't know when or what, but yeah, I'll be there. So awesome. 100%. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, you doing this show, Nico, and uh, and everything you do. So appreciate Thanks, you man. guys, what, what, you're, what you're working on, you and your team. So thank you. I pre appreciate it. And of course, the show wouldn't be possible without Opti. James, thank you so much. Appreciate it. See you in California. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Simply Bitcoin IRL. If you enjoyed the show, you know what to do. Smash that like button. Consider subscribing. And if you feel, uh, you know, you could tune into the live show tomorrow. But until then, peace out, guys. I'll see you later. 